Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Mark Malkoff. I'm the host of the Carson Podcast and Persistence 360, and this is OPP. Pod bless and welcome to another episode of OPP, America's number one podcast discovery platform that highlights your favorite podcasters and the dope shows they created. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Our special guest this episode is comedian Mark Malkoff, host of the Carson Podcast. Mark talks with guests about legendary late night talk show host Johnny Carson. On this amazing podcast, he interviews guests, which includes stand-up comedians who debuted on The Tonight Show, individuals that worked on the show, frequent guests, and top entertainers that were influenced by Carson. In this interview, we learn so much more about Mark, and wow, he has such an interesting past. We chat about his early life growing up in Hershey, Pennsylvania. He shares amazing stories about his friendship with legendary comedian Phil Hartman, hanging out on the set of SNL. We chat about all things Johnny Carson. I get his podcaster's picks and so much more. Mark also stops by to chat about his new podcast, Persistence 360, a podcast about becoming more persistent and resilient in the things you care about in life. He's interviewed amazing guests like journalist Soledad O'Brien and former astronaut Mike Massimino and many others. So enough of me. Let me introduce you to the host of the Carson Podcast and the host of Persistence 360, Mark Malkoff. Hey, so Mark, do you hear me? I do hear you. What's up, man? Oh, it's so good to be here. Thank you for asking. <laughs> I don't do many of these, so this is one in person, rather. Uh, most of it's phone or Skype. So uh, this is so cool being on the other side. That's the thing that I love about OPP, and I love Silent Giants, my other podcast. But I really love OPP because the the prep or the nervousness for the interview isn't really there because everyone's used to talking. <laughs> you know yes, I mean? that's true. That's what I, I talk sometimes. It's great to have you. Shout out to Sadie May, uh, good dear friends of ours. She put me on to the Carson podcast. Oh, so that was Sadie. Thank you, Sadie May. Because I remember we were in the elevator and you mentioned somebody named Sadie who likes podcasts. I'm like, is it Sadie May? Of the scene and culture of podcasting, she's becoming like a, a fixture. She's becoming a, a a person that everyone in podcast in the podcasting world knows and is familiar with. Her enthusiasm is so appreciated. Like there's just something like a bright light about her, her love of podcasts and podcasting. And, uh, you know, I, I really, really uh, love when I hear from her. She's been so nice and supportive. Yeah, you know what, what I'm going to do? For sure, in this episode, I'm going to put her Instagram in the description so people can follow her. All right. She is, she's diehard, man. Yeah. But yeah, are you born and raised in New Yorker, man? I moved here when I was 18. Before then, I was in Hershey, Pennsylvania, where they make chocolate. You might have heard. Dude, heard I've been to Hershey Park. Yeah, I worked at Hershey Park when I was, uh, let's see, 14, 15, 16. And then, was I 17? And then I... um. And then I went to Hershey High School. I graduated from Hershey High School. But didn't everyone work at Hershey Park? I feel like, <laughs> like <laughs> pretty much for Hershey. Like, what is what is the other economy in the town? Yeah, I mean that that was pretty much it. Like, there was very little. It's like my dad worked for Hershey 
foods. And then he worked, um, got transferred to the Milton Hershey School, which is uh, this incredible place where it's underprivileged kids. Most of them don't have a parent or two parents. And it's the Hershey Endowment, Milton Hershey, and they all live in homes and they all get school paid for them. And it's incredible uh, thing. So we lived on campus for a bunch of years. Wow. Yeah. Dude, the whole town smells like chocolate. When it's windy and raining, it smells like chocolate. And I still have friends that do not believe me in New York <laughs> that have never been there. And the streetlights are in the shape of Hershey Kisses. And I did not eat chocolate for, it was like at least six years when I was growing up there because it was just like, Everything. It was like so in your face. It's like people that are in Orlando that have never been to Disney World. Oh, but I totally understand why because it's just so gaudy in your face. Yeah. It's like it's the culture of the town. It's it's definitely was a, a unique place. But like I have to tell you. When I was like 15, 16, I would be coming up to New York. And this is uh, this is when still like uh, Times Square was was not cleaned up. And it was, it was like this personality to NYC. But I was coming up here to go to Late Night with David Letterman at NBC and um, camp out for Saturday Night Live tickets and wait out in the 30 Rock lobby to like uh, meet Saturday Night Live cast members when I was like, I don't know, 16 or something. So I I just, I knew that this is the place I I wanted to be. Were you doing anything like performance-wise at Hershey Park? No, I was working in merchandise, selling overpriced merchandise to, (laughs) there would be tourists that are like- You were a scammer, pretty much. They've been holding, I'm making $4.50 an hour, and there's there'd be like people that be like, do you see the price on this mug? I said, yes. What does it say? $7.50, which was like a lot back then. I mean, do the inflation. I mean, this was like 20 years ago. And I'm like, I get four fifty, and like they are giving me attitude. It's like when I was an intern on the Sally Jesse Raphael show, and the audience coordinator they would turn away forty people, and the audience coordinator who's getting compensated will not turn them away. He's like, Mark, you go do it, unpaid intern. And like people are throwing stuff at me, and I have to shout out, I'm not getting paid. And then they <laughs> became my friends, and they gave me hugs, and they consoled me. But um, yeah, people. People, there's definitely issues when people do not feel like they're being taken care of. Uh, I, I'm sitting here listening to you talking. You drop a lot of uh, little gems about television and about, you know, coming to uh, the Letterman show. Where did this love for television come from? I was, when I was um, three years old till fourth grade, I was at, um, outside of Chicago in Arlington Heights, Illinois. And I was just, Mrs. Perkowitz, my um, my librarian in elementary school, would make fun of me because I would check out the same book every week, which is, what goes on in a television studio. And I was obsessed with TV. Like I'd come home and like, I wouldn't want to play. I'd just watch as much TV as possible. I had so many questions. Like there was no internet, like what went on and stuff. And my dad really got me into comedy. So like, I just, I was so into comedy. And then I started writing the cast of Saturday Night Live and they would write me back. And it was one of these things where I'm like, I have to, I have to get to New York. I have to get to New York. And I was obsessed with SNL. I was obsessed with, um, I really like Dave Letterman. And it was like this different world. Like, I mean, I'd be here and then le- like 12 hours later, I'd be in Hershey High School in homeroom in Mr. Sollenberger's homeroom. So it was this contrasting world. Whoa, whoa, let's go, let's go yeah, back. Let's go wait, back. wait, how, how did you write the cast of SNL and how did they write you back? Oh yeah, okay. So it was the Patriot News, Harrisburg Patriot News, we would get daily and on Sundays they would have the TV listing and I was flipping through because I was like back then especially it's like what good is what good stuff is going to be on TV like I there's certain things I'm, I have to see this and I saw like in the it was like the back page that they listed all the, the addresses to the different NBC CBS um, all the different that networks and there, I just saw all I saw my eyes went to NBC 30 Rockefeller Plaza New York New York what is it one zero one one two and I just like stared at it and I was like I was obsessed with SNL and I'm like, that this has to be the address to, to SNL. So 
you know, like like a lot of stuff with me, it's just curiosity. And a lot of times I'll put it out there and forget about it. I'm like, this probably isn't going to happen, but I'm still going to take action. And it was one of those things. I did a letter and I don't know, five days later, I got a response and I got like, uh, he wrote me back and I was just like, I, I couldn't believe it because the, like there was, you know, there wasn't a YouTube, there was like very few people that were on TV. And like, if you were on TV, it was like this huge thing. And I just couldn't believe that somebody in New York that was famous could have any connection with, with me whatsoever. And then what happened is um, within like a year after that, I got on the phone with one of them. They took me up to set. I was a teenager. when I always tell when I, I'm asked to speak to high schools, I'm like, when you're a kid, you can kind of get away with a, a lot, with enthusiasm and, and with the power of asking. Wait, so wait, so who wrote you back again? The first one, Phil Hartman. He, was, um, he passed away. In 1998, in he, unfortunately. Yeah, he was one of the greatest. He, he, wait, I, Phil yeah. Hartman wrote you back? Yeah, I have letters from him. I have a self-portrait that he drew me in person. I have uh, photos with him. And the thing with Phil Hartman, like I, when I was a teenager, I didn't know it was inappropriate to ask the, the, the SNLers to do impressions for me. So like, I would I would see Phil Hartman. I'm like, can you do Jack Nicholson? Can you do Bill Clinton? Can you do Ed Wynn? And he would do impressions uh, for me. And he was he was the nicest guy, like the the nicest guy. So it was one of those things when they started writing me back, it was like this different world. I'm like, maybe there, there's, you know, I can make some connection with, with some of these people. And it was just like one thing after another where things al- aligned and doors started opening up. And I just was like, I can't believe as a teenager that this was happening. Yeah. Holy shit. That is amazing. Oh yeah. It <laughs> like, was interesting. I am in awe. It was interesting. And then I really like Letterman. I was going to this, this show at NBC on the sixth floor. And then, uh, yeah, I got a day job there when I was 22. I graduated and, um, it was the weirdest circumstances. I always tell people, sometimes people will be like, how do you get a job on this TV show? How did you work on a day job on this show? I'm like, I didn't try It all. Like came to me. Like I was doing TV internships and I was trying to get work, but like every time I've like chased something like a specific show, it's never worked. It's like, it's like, um, my last TV show that I worked on, um, for three years and eight months, it was something that like just came to me and it was like the best gig I've ever had in terms of just like, I learned a lot. It was good people, but people constantly were like, how do I get your job? How did you do this? And I'm like, I, I, it just came to me and I am grateful. Wow. What was the first, uh, your first job on a television show? Oh gosh. I was an intern. The first time I ever made money. Let's see. I got paid. I think my first money in, in television was I was paid something like $15. Um, after I graduated, after I, I did my internship at Sally, Jesse, Raphael, they had me babysit one of the kids that uh, their parents were going to be on the show, and I had to babysit their kids. And I got like, I think I got fifteen dollars, but I was like, this is my first room because I did all these internships, and like now people get paid, but back then, n- no money, no subway token. Those tokens back then, and then MetroCard. Uh, so like, yeah, I mean, it, it was just that was it. Nobody, I did a lot of them, no payment, and then I got hired. I was doing an internship at Spin City, Michael J. Fox over at Chelsea Piers, and uh, after I graduated, after my, I did two semesters of an internship. I got in good with people, and then I was hired in the audience department. So I'm a college graduate. I just graduated, and my my main thing on Friday nights is giving out water and raisin to the audience. So my, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg's idea, because he was a, it was a DreamWorks show, was always that the audience, uh, you know, it's, it can be like three or four hours, and that they need some sort of like uh, something to like sustain, because it's like you have to laugh, and it's all this energy. So um, yeah, we give a, a small box of raisins and then water to the audience and uh it was a really cool place like i definitely learned a lot he was one of um he's like somebody i really looked up to as a kid michael j fox and he was really nice wow yeah dude okay so wait 
did was your focus now if it's like it's an episode of silent giants like was this was this your focus initially just to be a comedian itself or was it be behind the scenes did you have any focus at all in the direction that you wanted to go in it's a really good question so like i pretty much knew that with most people that do comedy, it takes years and years. Listen, there are some people like John Stewart who was good right away. He denies it, but everybody I know that's talked to him said he 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 was good right away. Dave Chappelle was good right away, but most people take between three and sometimes the best stand-ups, like 10 years. I knew it was gonna be a journey. I, I was doing stand-up a little bit, then I did sketch, and I'm like, I know that I'm gonna have to have a day job. So I was why not television? Like this would be good. I'll I'll be able to to see the inside, make some connections. And just kind of get into this world as a day job. So that's when I did the TV internships in college. And then I was an audience coordinator, assistant audience coordinator, and audience coordinator for a long time. I mean, I, w- I basically did it um, so I could do my own comedy. I mean, it basically funded my own comedy and it paid the rent. And I've got, I, I did get to do a lot of cool things. What, what, what is audience coordinator? What is that? Okay, so let's say the last one I did, the last show I did, it, there was 107 seats and I was responsible for getting 107 people with pulses uh, into the seats, getting them tickets, getting them booked. And then I would talk to them. I was not the warm-up comedian, but I would talk to them before the show, anywhere from five minutes to a half hour. And basically, the, the trick is to getting an audience good with their laughter is making them feel guilty that they they have this responsibility. I would always say it's 107 people and 3.2 million people are going to be watching tonight, whatever it was. They they need your laughter because this is it. They're starstruck in the beginning when the host is out. And they for, there's like, out of 107 people, there's always be like 35 that would just be grinning, no noise coming out of them. So I would do whatever I could relentlessly to get them to remember to laugh. You could hear me laugh every single night. I mean, you would have... People uh, just be like, great show last night. I'm like, yeah, it was really funny. Like, no, you're laugh. So, I, you know, I, it just, it's so hard for the comedian behind the desk or on stage to, to perform when they're not getting the level of laughter that they're used to. They take it very personally, most of them. Of course. And uh, I just have so much, I have empathy for anybody that performs, whether somebody does really well, somebody that doesn't do well. I give so much credit for anybody that is willing to, to get on that stage. I mean, it's... It's it's not an easy thing. That's the thing too. Uh, uh, through OPP, I've been able to meet a lot of comedians because I think podcasting has been humongous for comedians. Oh yeah, uh, I think they've benefited more than any other maybe career profession uh, from this medium. But I have so much respect for comedians because as a, I'm a hip hop artist, I came up making music. But when I'm on stage, I have a beat. You know, I can I can do call and response. You know, I can do things to delay the inevitable uh, as the volcano erupts of embarrassment. There are things I could do to stop the bleeding. But for comedy, you're just by yourself. There's no beat. There's there's nothing. You just have to make something about out of thin air. When I did stand up, the highs were really highs. The lows were really lows. I saw comedians have meltdowns. I was the door guy. Um, and a bunch of well-known people were door people before me at the Boston Comedy Club, which was here in the city where uh, Chappelle used to perform and a lot of people like that. That was down on um, 3rd Street between Thompson and Sullivan. And it was a rough room. I mean, I saw... I saw um, a couple of meet comedians get heckled and just have complete meltdowns on stage. And it's funny because like one of them I didn't see until like eight or nine years after that, the meltdown he had. And all I had to do was say, I saw you one time at the Boston Comedy Club and you, you just saw the physicality, like his whole face. He, he like this cringiness because like comedians just they, they don't forget those moments. And he's like, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> and uh, we briefly talked about it. And then I uh, wisely changed the subject. But um. 
it's it was that was a really tough room. Fights would break out. Um, yeah, I think Ben Bailey, who did Cash Cab, he got into a fight with somebody there. Um, it was it was not the easiest place. You know, uh, speaking, we're gonna jump a little bit into your new podcast, uh, Persist- Persistence Three Sixty. But going on that on this note, with your worst show that you've ever had, how did you bounce back, and what did you learn from that experience? I mean, the worst possible show that I remember is when myself and my sketch group opened up for a very famous comedian at college. We did two of the dates and like before we even took stage, when we were announced to the audience that there was an opening act, we got booed the entire time we performed. And it was just like, it, it really helped having a connection with other people. We could make eye contact and just go down and we, there was no going up. And it was really, really hard. But I mean, it was just one of those things. They were not there to see us, but in terms of doing stand up when it didn't go well, it would take me a while to get over it. I mean, it was just, I don't think, I, I don't remember ever doing okay. It would either be like I would do really, really well or or not. I, I don't think I did it enough. Like you, like all my friends that are stand-ups, it's working out, it's going to the gym. They have to get up almost every night. Like, and most of them want to get up like at least several times a night. And, uh, you know, if they go on vacation for two weeks, it'll take them two weeks to get back to where they were. I just wasn't getting up enough. I didn't love it enough. Like, I mean, I really liked the sketch. And then once I started doing my own videos and following my curiosity, I was having such, that was the fit for me. That was, I felt way more natural. I'm, I actually told my wife, Christine, I'm going to do, I haven't done stand-up in years that I'm going to do stand-up for the first time um, this year at some point. And it's, uh, I'm I'm nervous. I mean, I, I definitely... I'm looking forward to it in part, but partly it's like you just don't forget. You know, the voice, it's the voices. It's the voice in your head that tells you you can't do this. There's been a bunch of them lately where I'm like, I can't do this. And then it turns out I could. And I think like for a bunch of years, I just remembered, I don't remember the good times of stand up. I just remember when it didn't go well a few times. And it's just like, Mark, you can't do this. And it's, it's a lie. It's not true. Uh, and it took me a long time uh, to realize that that wasn't true. I mean, I did another thing with like, um, running. My mom always said, our family doesn't run. We're not runners. And whenever I tried in gym class, when we had to run the mile, it was always like, I couldn't do it. It was like torture. Like I would get there, but it would take a long time and I have to walk. So then like, I'm like, I can't run. And then my wife forced me to, to, to run it and I could do it. And it was like one of those things like, what else am I telling myself <laughs> that is not true? And I think we all have those. We, we do. And I talked about that on Persistence 360 recently. It might be in the episode for next week, but I mean, I really think everyone has one of those. Uh, you know, I come from the music background. I get to interview a lot of A and R's, a lot of producers, and I get to, you know, doing the A and R's. A and R. I don't. It sounds familiar. No, I don't think I do. Uh, so, artists and repertoire. They're the people at record labels. Oh yeah, that uh, sign talent. It's like a Clive Davis. Yeah, it's like, like a Clive you know, Davis, right? Or like, uh, but I don't get to ask. I've never interviewed a comedian, and to ask them this question yeah. is: what, what is a good comedian to you? Like, what are the the, the pillars that you think make up uh, a good comic? Yeah, you know, originality, a strong point of view, and being able to connect with the audience, and uh, yeah, just hold the audience. I mean, somebody was telling me, um, you know, just like you have to make it feel like you're having a conversation with the audience and they think you're directly talking to the, them. Like Chappelle is a master at it. Chris Rock's a master of it. And I just think you have to be able to write new material. Cause like the public, you know, a, mu- a musician sometimes, and I'm not, I'm not, it's a very hard job, but like they can, a lot of famous bands, they can show up every four years and like comedians just can't do that. Like they have to have new material pretty much all the time. Like if a comedian's going on Jimmy Fallon, 
they need new material. Like, I mean, they constantly need that. So somebody that's prolific, like Chappelle is very, very prolific. He is one of those people that I can't do this. He will write on stage. He, he would show up to the club and just and just start talking and he would get stuff from there. I mean, some of the stuff would work. Some of the stuff wouldn't. But you would be constantly on stage writing. And it was amazing when I was doing that to see certain famous comedians. And I'm not saying Chappelle. I've never seen him bomb, but there's certain famous comedians that would just come in and and and, and eat it on stage. And it was definitely eye-opening, but I definitely think having a strong point of view, I mean, both of those guys have strong points of view. And uh, I don't know if you can be universal, I think like the mainstream for sure. But I, you know what I think the number one factor is really is likability. Mm. I think it's likability. Johnny Carson actually said that because um, for people to, to get babysitters, and drive distances and pay lots of money to see people live. It's it's the likability thing. I mean, it's so in, in our day and age with like the internet and just Netflix and there's so many things that people can do. Because like back in the day, and I interviewed somebody about this. Like like they every night um, there would be uh, like these these bars that would have like it would be like what is it like. 10, 5,000 people would show up because they had nothing else to do. There was no internet. And uh, like the band Twisted Sister, I interviewed one of the people. I and mean, their story is crazy. But like they were- Oh, in, man. They were they, Lo- they were D. Snyder? Yes. Yeah, So they yeah. were in Long Island playing like every night. Dude, There'd wait, be thousands of people. Have you seen their Netflix? Yes. Or that's their- what got me. Oh, my God. I couldn't believe God. it. No, the episode will be coming out Dude, soon. I couldn't believe their they, story. They are literally- It's not about yeah. talent. Yeah. It's not about if you like their music. That is the most hard- I couldn't believe it. The most, the most amazing story of perseverance yeah. that I've ever me, heard like, in, let, in my entire life in music history. Let me see. Let me tell you. When it came up on my Netflix, um, is a possible thing. I'm like, what? Like, what is this possible? Like, I only know a couple um, of their hits, like maybe two. I'm like, how can this warrant a documentary? And then I started watching. And I was like, I can't believe, believe it. this. And it was the perseverance and the persistence that almost no one would go go through that. I mean, it was one obstacle after another where m- almost anyone else. Uh, would would drop out, and I didn't know that most bands get you get signed within like a like a half a year to like a year, maybe a little bit longer. And I mean, they took l- l- like l- ten times that. I texted my best friend yeah. when I was watching that, and was like, "Fam, you have to watch this Twisted Sister documentary." And he was like, "Yo, what are you talking about?" And I, literally, as I'm watching it, I'm thinking to myself. I probably would have quit right there. <laughs> like, it's tempting, and, and, and it's sometimes. like, fi- and it's like five steps. It was, af- it was like one, it was like one thing after another, and you were just like, you, you couldn't make something up like that. There's sometimes like when, um, like friends will tell me stuff, and I know it's true, and I'm like, if I saw that in a movie, there's no way I'd believe it. I'm like, this could never happen, and uh, with with them, it did. So it was really cool, um, having uh, one of the founders on on Persistence 360. And it's gonna come out soon, but uh. Yeah, that story, hearing those stories just gives me so much, I don't know, I think I'm a persistent person, but definitely just like, it's definitely keeping me going. And I think we all need motivation. Like, I think the most motivated people in the world still still need to hear stories and still ha- need uh, fuel to, to keep the, the, the focus and the determination. Yeah, it, that I definitely got that away from, it's funny that you mentioned that Twisted Sister story, because that was literally like, yo, if they made it, you don't, this is the test that don't ever give up. But you know, we're gonna take a quick break. When we get back, Mark, we're gonna get into your podcast, The Carson Show and Persistent 360. Looking forward to it. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay. We're back. We're back. <laughs> I insert commercials at this point. So uh... I get it. <laughs> Pay the bet, bills. But Joe, so, so first of all, I want to ask you, how did you first... Uh, get into podcasting? I wanted to do a podcast. I was always at parties. Uh, I don't like usually going to parties with a lot of people I don't know. I just get self-conscious. But like one reason I could, one way I could get through is just, uh, I would just like ask people like tons of questions. Like I, if I could meet somebody that like had never like, had a job, I like have never met somebody. I would just like question after question. I was like, I'm just a curious person. I want to do a podcast. And I was going to do a podcast just sitting down with people that I, uh, and just interview them. And then it got to the point where I, I, it's constantly following my curiosity. And uh, the one gentleman that I had my podcast about, Johnny Carson, who Steve Martin said something like more famous than the president. I mean, 30 years, he was the most famous man in America. There was so little known about this guy. And I'm a show business entertainment, just, I don't want to say nerd, but let's face it, I am. And it was one of those things where I had so many questions and I was like, no one's going to listen. It's the voice in my head said two things. One, nobody's going to listen to this. Maybe like 10 people. And the second thing is you're not qualified to host a podcast. You 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 don't know how to interview people. Like who's who's going to talk to you? So like that was going through my head. And then I sat down with Peter Jones, who did the documentary for Johnny Carson for PBS. And he I told him my idea. And he's the one that's like, Mark, you have to do this. You tell everyone I endorse you. And and basically the, the 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 sea started to part and all these things started to fall in line and I had no expectations and I kind of couldn't believe that everything uh, w- was happening. Oh, why why Johnny Carson? I you know what I just I'm, I'm a, I really am interested in his longevity. Like nobody's gone thirty years and been number one and like had the competition. The he had competition but no serious competition. The only longevity with comedy, a comedy show that I know of, is Saturday Night Live, which has been number one in its time slot since 19, October of nineteen seventy five without any real competition. Matt TV was 11, uh, 11 p.m., and they also were a much younger demographic. I mean, they would not usually put anything on that a 12-year-old couldn't get, whereas SNL would, um, they would definitely do that for the 12-year-old, but they play more up to uh, their uh, the intelligence level where they could make references and stuff. So they haven't had any competition. He didn't have any competition, and it was it was one of those things. It was like the most glamorous thing to watch when I was little. I mean, I was I was like really young when, when the show went off. But it was one of those things like what went on? Like there was no reality shows. It's like what is going on backstage? Who's holding the cur- curtain open for Johnny? Like what the guests? Like what's going on with them? And I had so many unanswered questions that I was like, I just want, even if this doesn't air, I just want my questions answered. Yeah. Tell the audience for those who are a little bit younger, the importance of Johnny Carson, what made him such a dynamic uh, comedian, host, and, this, and why this show was so, so successful. Yeah, th- th- this was before Jimmy Fallon, before Leno, the host of The Tonight Show, Johnny Carson from October 1st, 1962, in the same studio that Fallon's in right now. And then he went uh, to L.A. Um, in Burbank, and he was there till 92. And he was this guy that made people's careers. Like, people will talk about him and cry to me. Like, I mean, everyone from, like... Um, 
like Ellen DeGeneres, her last Netflix special, she showed a clip yep, of her yep. and Carson. Seinfeld, like, still says it's the biggest moment in his career, show business career. I mean, Drew Carey, I mean, I've seen him cry. And when he think it's really emotional. I mean, I, I've sat down with 200 people, people that lives were changed on the show, people that worked on the show, people that wrote for the show, people that produced the show. And it's just like, I, I've done enough where I, and like almost all my questions have been answered, but still to sit down with somebody like Byron Allen, who's an entrepreneur who is like in entertainment studios. He bought the Weather Channel for, was it, $300 million. And to sit down with him and hear his story, which should be a biopic about how he got Carson when he was 18 years old. And they asked him when he was 17, but he's like, I want to graduate first. And he's just this, this that the most amazing stories that are out there about this time period. Because my friends that are comedians now, it is still a huge accomplishment to do the late night shows. But 99% of the time, I would say even more, nothing happens. I mean, it's back then, if people went on Carson and they did really well, uh, their lives could conceivably change and that would help. That would happen for certain people. Oh, I mean, he was the, oh man, he was the plug. I mean, especially at a time where, you know, now we can put ourselves on, right? We have like podcasts, we have YouTube, and we have all these different mediums that we can do a DIY, DIY content and put it out to the world. At that time, he was the biggest platform. Like it said something about you to be endorsed by him. He would sell, like he would put on these authors because the show, when it was 90 minutes and they, they, some of these people would sell millions of books. Um, it's kind of like the only thing I can think of um, in the recent years was like Oprah, maybe Ellen, but like even people I wasn't aware of, like the, he launched like Frank Abagnale who wrote the book and then there was a movie, Catch Me If You Can. Yeah, Johnny yeah. Was, the fir- was the person that put him on four times and Johnny was the one that like, at, uh, after the fourth time, he's like, you need to write a book. And he's like, I'm 30. Maybe when I'm 60, he's like, no, I'm going to get you the best lit, lit agent in the business. She's about to retire. I'm going to tell her to take you on. And she got him a deal where he got all the rights to the movie. The publishers had zero, which is super rare. And it was option for like 20 some years. He had to get variety to find out that Tom Hanks, um, Leonardo DiCaprio was playing him in the movie. And um, this was directed by Spielberg. And it was, you know, he gives complete credit to Johnny Carson. And when the movie, when they first had a print, um, Spielberg sent uh, a copy to Carson thanking him. Wow. Yeah, was this this platform that just doesn't exist anymore? I want you to explain the show. Explain the Carson show. Okay. Uh, Johnny, when he would come out, he would do a monologue that was topical. He... He didn't take sides um, politically uh, back then. I like, like Fallon doesn't do it now, but he would definitely like make fun of both sides. And he would do a topical monologue, and people would really go to him to get their like their current events and get their take on it. And then he would have guests on. He would have, you know, animals, kids, uh, musicians, stand-up comedians were a big thing. And it was almost like a party. I mean. It was very strange um, where they were culturally because, I mean, they would, in the 70s and 60s, they would smoke on air. So you would see the guests smoking and drinking on air. It was very, very different. But the next day, people would be talking about what happened on Johnny Carson. I mean, it was definitely an event. Like Seinfeld called it event television. It was like late night with David Letterman at 1230 and then uh, Carson Carson at 1130 and then Letterman. And it was like this thing that was just, uh, did you see the show? Did you see the show? And People, you know, what they call Walter Cronkite the most trusted man in America. But I, I think if you had to pick like an entertainment figure, I think he'd be in the top three, you know, if not maybe number one. People really trusted him. I mean, even though he his personal life was kind of all over the place and he was married four times and had alcohol issues um, on camera, he just had this likability and he transcended all across America. I mean, just people in the cities, people in middle America, they just really loved this guy. And he, he loved nothing better than launching new talent. 
So all these people like Jim Carrey, oh, so many people when they were young, uh, going on this show and uh, a lot of them, their lives changing. Uh, for your for your podcast, what was the first steps for you to get started and who was your first interview and how did you find people to to interview and who were a part of the Carson show? You know, I, kn- I knew who a lot of the guests were, but I'm like, are they actually going to talk to me? And Peter Jones, who documented the documentary, was the first person to talk to me. And I asked Peter, I was like, who else should I talk to? And he's like, this person, this person, and this one. Here's their phone numbers. I was like, wait, what? You're giving me phone? So, um, yeah, I, it's strange calling. Like, I'm so much more, my, I'm more comfortable with the e- just emailing somebody, but a lot of these people are older. So I had to, like, cold call these people. And um, it's just like doors started opening. It was, um, you know, people would be like, I want, you should do this guest. Like, um, Carl Reiner told Mel Brooks that you you um, told Mel you should do Mark's show, and Mel Brooks does almost nothing. So it was, it was a lot of that. And I think, you know what I think? It's one of those things where people, so many of these people love talking about this time in their lives, but they don't have the chance to do it long form. Like it would be somebody that like did a something on like uh, on like a college. I, I'm just make up a college. Like let's say Penn State. Like 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 alumni, famous alumni, approaching them and being like, "I'm doing um, a podcast about people the uh, people's experiences at Penn State. Would you talk to me?" You have, those people do not get that chance. If they had a good college experience, I think that there would be a decent chance on getting uh, famous people to say yes. Because I think when you put something in front of them that they just love and it's dear to them, they're more inclined to do it. Because people will ask me, how do you get these famous people? And uh, like I've gotten people that will not do these. And I'm like, two words, Johnny Carson. Plus, they listen to me and they know I'm respectful and I'm not. I have no gotcha agenda. I'm not right. trying to do anything like that. Through this aspect of my life of podcasting, I've learned so much about all of my guests. I've learned so much about the industry that I'm a part of. Um, but what have you learned about about Carson through this experience? Like I've done a lot of informa- yeah. a lot of interviews about Michael Jackson. Sure. Um, I've learned so much about him, his work style. What did you learn about about Carson that you didn't know before starting the show? I'll tell you. When you get like one or two people that constantly go on television and they repeat something over and over again whether it's true or not people start to believe it like i mean i've 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 definitely seen it and like joan rivers would go on tv and listen i worked with her twice uh, actually once on fashion police she was so nice and i met her one other time and i wanted her to come on i invited her but it was like um she's tragically passed away a little bit later but um she would go on tv and say bad things all the time and uh and it wasn't until I started this podcast that I would sit down with people that worked on The Tonight Show and people that were in that situation that like, their 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 stories were night and day uh, of Joan Rip- what was uh, Joan Rivers' version. I, I'm not saying that she was wrong or who was right. All I'm saying is like I had like at least a dozen people that that had a completely different version of went down, but they didn't. Johnny didn't want people to talk publicly. They were very loyal to him, and she would just go on TV saying these things, so the public would hear it enough. And uh, I think that there were a lot of people that had, and I, you know, me too. I was one of those people, like, I'm sure Carson doesn't have a lot of friends and maybe he, you know, has has this mean streak. Um, and then um, there was another gentleman who was Johnny's lawyer who um, Johnny uh, let go and uh, he he wrote a book and there's definitely people I know that, that, um, that knew him that were just, uh, the book was very, it was negative. It was a lot of negative. So those are the two vocal voices that are out there. Those two things. And I'm like, uh, I, I, I was a little trepidated. I, I just wasn't sure if I was going to do this cause I didn't want to do anything negative. But then I started sitting down with people that have never talked publicly that were, that were friends with him. And it was like this all this new di- different guy, like the staff loved him. Um, People um, like 
yeah, I'm trying to think like David Steinberg, people like he had friends, but like when you're the most famous person in America, you cannot open up to everybody. You have to right. somewhat guard yourself. So, but like a lot of people have told me a decent amount that he was the same guy you would see on TV, but he would only do that with like selected people. But I mean, he, I, I mean, tr- I'm trying to think of like who like would be like today that you could, you could say, um, you just can't be that person. Like, I'm sure everybody goes up to Oprah and she, people cry to her all the time. And I'm sure she, she, she gives people time when she can, but you can't, you just can't be that person on, um, all the time. I mean, it's, 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 it's too much and I don't, and it's not healthy. And, um, yeah, Carson just like, just really, um, stayed in a lot of the time and valued his, his privacy. He would go out of, um, sometimes, but, um, yeah, it was definitely the lack of privacy was, was rough, especially yeah, back then. Mm, so you now have a new show. Yeah. Uh, Persistence 360. Yeah. Uh, why the desire to, to have a new show? Oh my gosh. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. And it was, again, I psyched myself out, uh, until I started doing them. And, uh, I've always been curious about persistence. Like, I'm a persistent person. I consider myself persistent. People that know me would, but like, there's all these people that were like, did these, the, the, these stories of persistence that like just inspired me. And I was like, what makes somebody go past all these obstacles where the most people will stop at the first obstacle, maybe the second one? Like, how are people's brains designed? Or is, are they like regularly wired like that? Like, how does somebody go through that, that pain of um, just not, like, just really going through unpleasantness to, I'm telling you, like eight years later, um, even more to finally uh, succeed. And there were all these stories out there. Everyone from, you know, I was sat down with uh, a NASA astronaut, um, famous actor, um, uh, author, journalist, and like they all have these, you know, they're all universal lessons. They give practical tips. And entrepreneurs, they all, even though they're in different fields, all have basically the same universal type story that's applicable to, to anybody and their tips. I mean, I've applied their tips. I've been hearing from listeners that have, and um, I've learned so much. Like, I mean, it, it's one of those things where my guest list and I, it's kind of embarrassing. I'm saying it. I said it on one other podcast. My, my guest list now is over a thousand people. Like, I mean, it's like a thousand seventy some people because I've done the research on persistent people. People have told me stories and I've already known about these persistent people, but like, it's just like, and some people don't call it persistence. They think of it more like not giving up or they think it more of it perseverance. But like, it is just one of those things that they, people not giving up their stories. I just love, love hearing. And, oh, you know, some of it's for me. I need to hear these stories. You know, it's um, anybody that goes certain fields, especially I would say entertainment. It's not the easiest field. I mean, there's definitely lots of successful people. And uh, I just, it's definitely for me personally. Um, it's been up and down. I've had some really big successes. Other times it's been tough and I'm still right now, um, you know, working towards something, um, a vision, something I want to do more than anything. And it's taken a bunch of years and I'm still doing it. And I just, uh, it it definitely helps me keep myself focused, not discouraged. And, uh, yeah, it's just fuel to keep going. Yeah. I mean, I listened to your episode today with Soledad. Oh yeah. And man, uh, First she's of all, a, amazing interview. Isn't she at the best? Like, I, and, I, and yeah, afterwards, like the Rocky music was like going in my head because I'm like, Soledad O'Brien. I mean, she's the real deal. Whoa, yeah. real deal. The realest of yeah. deals. But she, I mean, also to her answers are, you can tell that she's so uh, uh, 
she's so talented and skilled at answering questions and giving yeah. questions. She's just so precise and very accurate. But her story was very motivational. I think for me, Persistence 360 is what I kind of needed like this week. Really? Yeah. I'm glad felt, to hear that. Well, it was like rainy for like three days. Yeah. And, oh, then it's gloomy in New York, LA, always the sunshine. But the one thing that got to me and a lot of things from her is like, there's a lot of people that will not allow themselves to be bad at something or like they'll be offered a, a something, a, a position or an opportunity. And like they say to themselves, I, I, I have no experience. I'm not going to do this where her and a lot of people I've interviewed just you know, said yes. And and they jumped in the water without being able to, to swim. I mean, she had to be live on camera and she says she wasn't good. She couldn't do it. And she was on live camera like what it was like three to seven, nine times a day. And she was bad for months and months. I think she said it was six to nine months of 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 not being able to do it before. And it's like putting oneself through these things. Um, it's a good lesson. I have the director of Saturday Night Live coming up. And he's been there since, I think, 06. And when he got SNL and when he got one other show, he's like, Mark, I didn't know what I was doing. It took months. It took like, I still don't know what I'm doing. And just to get the skill set, these are people that have never done anything like this and they have an opportunity. And there's something to be said about just saying yes and in doing it and jumping in, even when it's a little scary. What what drives your persistence? Like, what is what is it about Mark Malkoff? What's that battery in your back that keeps you going? I, I think there's a lot of things. One, when I get enthusiastic about something that's in my head, I um, I, I know that that's probably going to take a, a little bit of time. Sometimes it doesn't take a lot of time, but it's one of those things. I just see the vision in my head, and um, as long as it's like you know something, if it's something that makes me laugh, that's positive, or something that like I think people, it's going to make people happy. That's worth persisting. Um, yeah, I'll just keep going. And then, yeah, it is, it's one of those things sometimes, like I've had people that are not like close friends, but people that know me that are like, Mark, I, there's, this is impossible. Like that, that charges me. Like when somebody tells me that something's that I can't do something or like the, the project I want to do is impossible and it's happened numerous times, it just does something in me. And like, I just, uh, I remember when I did a, a video for Skype, I did it for their 10th anniversary where I attempted to talk to every, every country, um, in the world over Skype. And I ended up doing 162 countries. Somebody on Facebook said, good luck with North Korea. Like I hate, I don't like the cynicism. I, I just don't like it. And it was at that point where I'm like, and Christy and my wife were like, we're going to get North Korea. They've ne there's never been a Skype call to North Korea, but we're going to figure it out. And we did research and just like a couple days before, like a week was the first Skype call from North Korea. And we were able to make it happen. And it was one of those things like, you know, it's just people are like, why are you doing this? This is impossible. And it's just one of those things where I really believe most things are. It's just working through with obstacles. And sometimes it just takes a while. What well, was there? Uh, uh, was there something maybe in your early life that triggered this thing? No, no. And, 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 and I no, say this because- valid. No, no. Yeah. Uh, I interviewed a woman by the name of Susan Rogers. Mm -hmm. uh, Susan was uh, Prince's- recording engineer and she did you know sign of the times and uh purple rain album and she was this princess you know right hand woman for years in the 1980s and for her she tells a story about being uh in an abusive relationship early in her life in her abusive marriage but it was that battery in her back that moment that like propelled her to never look back and to keep going forward is there a thing or a moment maybe in your life that that has driven uh, a, a turning point that you were like, okay, we just triggered that persistent switch. I definitely think going over to Saturday Night Live and getting over to do some stuff over there, which I was like, this is this is, I can't believe this is happening. It was definitely like a thing where I'm just like, if I just keep 
go into something that like I, I don't know on paper it looked like it would ne- there's no way it would happen people in Pennsylvania were like this is this is this, this can't happen and when I started to see stuff that happened it was happening for me then like that my limitations what I thought were limitations they started to to, to slowly dissipate more mm. and it would um and just definitely I, I I feel and like this is just me I feel like I've been dismissed a lot like over the years with with stuff like I feel like People dismissed early on my, my stunt videos that then went on to do really well and get covered around the world. People dismissed when I started first doing sketch comedy. Um, yeah, I just feel like I feel like the, the dismissiveness um, throughout is definitely something that like when I when I feel that whether it's real or not. And I I think most of the time it's 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 probably real. But when I perceive it, it doesn't matter. It's something that just um it just charges me that I have to pull this off. Like when I get enthusiastic about something, like for example, um, I wanted to, to do a video with the Apple store um, at the Apple store because I, I, I would always hear of these crazy things that would go on app in Apple stores and no one had ever documented it. So over a year, I would just ask Apple store employees, could you conceivably do blank in an Apple store? I'd give them the, the really unusual situation that I thought they would say no to. And they'd always be like, yeah, I think you can do that. So I did a video where um, the, the, the top thing uh, that I did, the thing that people remember is I brought a goat, a live goat into the Apple store on the Upper West Side on 66th Street. And it was like, surely something is going to happen where they won't let me do something. But every time I did like a big stunt in the Apple store, um, yeah, I was able to do it. I made a video. It did over a million views called Apple Store Challenge. And it was one of those things where I'm like, I was just was so excited to share my concept with the world that I'm like, this is going to be a hard video to, to pull off and produce. But it's just like, once I get in my head and I see it, um, it's just like, there's, I'm just going to keep going. This part of the show that we call our podcasters picks, uh, where I ask today's subject to give me their top three favorite podcasts and describe them to me. I like uh, a bunch of the ones I was really into, and I haven't listened in a while. Here's the thing with Alec Baldwin. And it's one of those things when I've told people about it, because I like the interview podcast like this, and like people were like, Alec Baldwin, and then they would listen, they're like, oh my gosh, because he gets people that normally don't do podcast interviews, like a Kristen Wiig, a Dave Letterman, a Lauren Michaels, a Billy Joel, and he just really gets them to open up in a cool way. And I, I really like what he's been able to get from his guests. I really like the Oprah soul conversations. Yeah. I mean, goodness. I was like, I was thinking like, I mean, everybody has a podcast. I'm like, now Oprah has a podcast. And then I started listening. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so good. And like, oh man, I was like, I, there's some days where I'm like, I just need this. I mean, I really, <laughs> really need it. And then I mentioned earlier, and I, he does such a good job that I've learned a lot. Also is James Altucher show. Um, which he interviews people, I mean, you know, entrepreneurs, uh, famous, um, you know, comics, it does like all walks of life. But um, I, I just like those ones that like that, that um, where I'm, you know, I'm learning, I'm definitely entertained, but the stuff definitely um, wherever I am at life, it, 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 it's just helping me along the way. You can't help listening to one of those Oprah uh, soul conversations, like the one with Steve Harvey. I'm like, oh, my goodness. I wanted him on persistence. And then you just, you hear his story and you're just like, I, because I, I, people are guilty and I'm guilty of this too, of sometimes seeing the finished product. They see Steve Harvey. They see he's pay, paid all this money. He's fully formed. Of course, he's on television. They do not see, they do not think about all the years of sacrifice and all the hard years that went through it. And you hear that Steve Harvey 
interview and you're just like, I, this is just like, I, it's unbelievable. And you just, I think we all need to be reminded when we have something in our head that we really want to achieve that we think is positive, that's going to serve the world, that it's going to take a, a time that there, there are going to be obstacles. And I think it just comes down to how, how badly do, do people want it? And some people don't want to do that. And that's okay. But if it's like, if people are being eaten, like it's eating people up, like I need to do this. This is what I need to do. Um, just hearing those stories, like it's just, it, it was just something that like I need constantly. And I think a lot of people do. Mark Markoff, man. Thank you so much for being here today. You're a cool ass Thanks. dude. Thanks. I talk a lot, but no, this is. I mean, dude, we're podcasters. I know. I'm just not used to being the guy. I'm used to the person asking the questions, but you're very good at what you do. And I'm honored that you asked me. This was so much fun. You're very good at what you do. No, look, you're great at what you, what you do as well, my man. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of OPP and to our special guest, Mark Malkoff, for stopping by the show. Be sure to check out his shows, The Carson Podcast and Persistence 360, and I'll be sure to provide the links to those shows in the description of this episode. This episode was mixed by Mark Bird. And lastly, before we get out of here, check out my other show, Silent Giants. Silent Giants highlights the superstars behind the scenes of popular culture, and I'll be sure to provide the link for you in the description of this episode as well. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. God bless everybody. Till next time. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.